Welcome to season two of The Unforgiving 60 with your hosts, Ben Pronk and Tim Curtis. Two ex-SAS guys armed with MBAs. In this show, Ben and Tim seek out people leading lives less ordinary and talk with them about how they fill their unforgiving minutes and what helps them go always a little further. Welcome to the Unforgiving 60 podcast. I'm Tim Curtis and I'm joined by my co-host Ben Pronk. Flexing. G'day Tim. Ben Pronk. Double bicep. You know, double bicep prompt. Yeah. Classic Arnie pose. How'd it go? Good. In fact, that was part of my um, Amy Cuddy superhero posing. The power pose. Power pose. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. Give us another show. Are you happy with the way <laughs> he's yeah. gone Atlas, all Atlas on us? Yeah. I'm, one, I'm pumped. I'm ready to go. Well, Amy well, Cuddy's stuff really works. If you haven't, disregard this podcast. Go and watch um, Amy Cuddy's YouTube talk on body language, power posing, uh, and its physiological effects on your testosterone and cortisol, and then double back here and listen to this amazing podcast. Or go the other way around, because we've got someone today who's power posed her way through time in the police, including in uh, remote areas, yeah, very yeah. challenging policing environments. Goldfields WA. Yep, uh, through to being an uh, Army Reserve medic, um, who in the heady days of Iraq, 2003-04, was a contractor for a private security company and attacked multiple times, yep. um, as well as working as an analyst for the United Nations. She's studied an undergraduate degree in counterterrorism, security and intelligence, and then postgrad uh, work at St. Andrews and uh, a current certificate in intelligence management and Islamic studies. Our guest is Kim Martin, an incredible tapestry in her bio. And an incredible story. We talk with Kim about everything from growing up as a self-proclaimed bogan in Rockingham, Western Australia, the, the joys of a V8 and a bucket full of Kentucky Fried Chicken, all the way through to what it's like to propose in a war zone. And along the way, we uncover some of her sort of insights into things like imposter syndrome, being a female in that kind of environment, some of the challenges it can bring, and how she's been able to progress through all of that to achieve all those amazing things that Tim just mentioned. Ah, the romance of a KFC restaurant. <laughs> Let's get on with the show. Welcome to the Unforgiving 60 podcast. I'm Tim Curtis with my co-host, Ben Pronk. Good day, Tim. How are you? And on the line via Tim, Zoom. how are you? Oh, <laughs> oh okay. <laughs> you don't listen to me at all, do you? Yeah. very seldom. <laughs> but on the line via Zoom, we've got Kim Martins. Kim, welcome to the Unforgiving 60 podcast. Hi, guys. It's great to be here. So plenty of things to talk about with you today. You have a very interesting bio. So perhaps just summarise uh, your early uh, sort of start to life. Where did you grow up and you know, what were you doing in those early professional days? Okay. So um, my I'm a WA girl, born and bred. Um, I'm, I was born to a single mother who is a school teacher and she has been the inspiration and guidance behind everything I've done. So at about nine, we, we were living in um, Rockingham, Bustleton, and mum was a, um, 
a teacher for kids with special needs. So I was really lucky to be um, around a lot of really amazing children. So at about <laughs> 10, my mother married the love of her life, um, my stepfather, Tony. Um, he's Italian. And I've taken on, as has my daughter, a lot of Italian um, traits and customs. We pretty much were raised Italian. <laughs> um, that was a huge turning point for me. Um, and then a couple of years later, my two brothers came into the picture, whom I'm very close with now. But back then, you can imagine <laughs> uh, sibling rivalry in the house was was um, interesting. <laughs> so at about um, my stepfather is um, has been an amazing um, influence on me. However, as most teenage girls, at about oh, fourteen, maybe I became a little bit of a recalcitrant. Um, I think from a very young age, from about six onwards, I remember my career objective in life was to be a police officer. That was it. That's all I wanted to do. That's what I told everyone I was going to be. Um, and at about 14 or 15, I discovered boys. And um, at 15, I had quite strict parents. I had a little job at KFC. And... Uh, met the love of my life he introduced me to fast cars and um or, you know the love of my 15 year old life and I ended up um taking off with him and leaving home at 15 and working full-time at KFC so um whilst that sounds you know um inspiring it really did equip me for um Part of my work ethic comes um, from my parents and the other part comes from working at a very young age um, in a place like KFC where I learnt to um, get along with customers and manage expectations, I think. 19, put the application in, was really excited and then uh, got told, ah, oh, look, love, you speed too much. And I think I had too many outstanding demerit points. <laughs> so, so just for, for our international audience, um, Rockingham, you know, that has got a proud history of, of yes. going pretty hard yes. in the V8 Commodores, doesn't it? Yes, like, yes. You know, this is a, a byproduct yes. of growing up in a town. Oh, look, There's nothing I, under five cylinders <laughs> down. Oh, sorry, nothing under five litres down there. Absolutely. Well, and, what what and, was your weapon of choice, Kim? What, what were you driving so in those I, days? I grew up a Ford girl, most mm -hmm. definitely a Ford girl, um, even though at sort of 18 I bought my first car with my little KFC money <laughs> and it was a little Mazda 323. Do you remember them? The like shame. The yeah, the little yeah, bubble car. Yeah, the shame, the shame. Absolutely, yeah. but it had a sunroof, so I didn't care. Yeah, okay. And, okay. um yeah, the shame, absolutely, of not having a, a, a V8. Yeah, absolutely. But the boyfriend at the time had an XD Falcon and it was a 351 and it was just the most amazing machine. I think that's the only reason I started talking to him. This is and, pretty much, um, I'm thinking, Mad Max looking, you know, it's yeah. that kind of body shape. Oh, isn't yeah. It? yeah. The yeah. last Cherry of the Apple interceptors. Amazing. And, and uh, look, I put my hand in my heart and swear I am a bogan. I okay. am. Was was there was there or was there not fluffy dice? Absolutely, pink Hanging. one. Pink, pink ones. You had to order them, especially for the pink fluffy <laughs> dice. Absolutely. And and my last question before we leave Rockingham, Kim. Oh yeah. KFC. Can you can you still face it? Did you overdose in those early days working there, or, or do, do you, you know still what? like it? 
oh, I still crave it sometimes. It took me years <laughs> after after I left to be able to eat it again, even the smell. Yeah. Um, but now I sometimes crave it, have it usually with my bestie when we're hungover. Mm-hmm. I'm impressed you know? that romance can blossom in a yes. KFC, you know, the oh, yeah, smell on, yeah. and sound of the yeah, chicken absolutely. deep frying in the background. Yeah. That's fantastic. It was amazing. And, you know, on the drive through you get to see all the great cars and strike up conversations <laughs> with the guys with the cars. This is like a, a, a neo-Tinder sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, it's like a, well, in my, in my teen years, I did meet a girlfriend in Pizza Hut who was serving in Pizza Hut. Right. Yes. Handed me yeah. a phone number on the back of the receipt, Ben. Oh, that's I find that hard cool. to believe. <laughs> that's true. Um, Kim, sorry, we've hijacked the conversation. Thanks, Spe- speeding <laughs> fines. Back <laughs> to speeding <laughs> fines. <laughs> so you, yeah, you're trying to apply fight. for the police, but you, your oh, Rockingham yeah. upbringing's against you. Oh, look, um, and I was, you know, as I'm sure anyone who's had a, you know, a goal in life and has had it abruptly halted and you just, there's no going back from that. You can't challenge it. You can't say, look, officer, really, I didn't mean to speak. Please give me the demerit points back. I think I had to wait 18 months and I did that. And I got into the academy at the ripe old age of 22. So the police academy, what? how many sort of females or how big was your class? Were there there a lot of girls? Yeah, so we were part of the um, 500 plan. I don't know if you remember that. So that was a, no. um, a was that a, it was a um, election promise from, okay. it was a Labor government election promise. So we came in, there was a squad a month and every third month, I think there was two squads and there was approximately between 25 and 30 um, people in each squad. Our squad, the Mighty Grey squad, um, we were we had eleven females in our squad, and we yeah, and we had the most out of all of the squads. Really, the most fantastic time of my life in the police academy. Anyone I come across, just that bonding, the mateship. Mm. Um, mm. We went out and attacked the world head on, and I did about five years, I think in the city district. So you do your 18 months probation and you move around, you do the dreaded booze bus. Um, And I did, most of my probation was spent in the city, Mm -hmm. Northbridge, um, back where we would expect to work every, don't I sound old, back, you know, back in the old days, (laughs) when we would expect to work every single weekend, um, you'd be lucky to get a weekend off. Um, And we would walk the beat night shift and we would love it engaging with people um and and it was where you learned really about human behavior i think and i thought well i'm single i can't i've really had a gutful of working in northbridge it's getting a bit weary you know sure let's go you've got to do country let's go to Kalgoorlie I'd never been to Kalgoorlie really never been hadn't been didn't know what I was getting in for so Sent which, which for our, our listeners is a gold fields area in eastern western Australia yeah um it's it's a bit hard to it's like really truly is the last of the wild west isn't it guys it's like um 
even now I think people who live there still love it. I loved Kalgoorlie, um, but I got off the plane there. Uh, before I did that, I emailed the officer in charge of the police station on night shift and said, um, Dear Sarge, I'm thinking about coming to Kalgoorlie. Um, I'm at the end of my tenure here. Uh, what do you think? And within two days, I got what we called back then a red devil, which was a transfer notice to go to Kalgoorlie. <laughs> <laughs> Another brilliant, amazing opportunity. Um, I love country life. Mm. Um, I think we spent most of our really good nights at um, the army barracks up there. We had my 30th birthday at the Boozer there. Um, and that was a dress up, which I think there was half of Kangoolie was there. I don't know who was policing the town. Mm -hmm. Working in rural WA, some of the mm. most beautiful place um, that I've ever ever seen and worked. And the people there, it was hardcore. I think I got knocked out for the first time in Kalgoorlie. <laughs> um, by Hopefully not friendly fire. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no. It was actually as in knocked out, head-butted, um, big Maori guy come off um, seven days of... Um, I think day shift and or night shift maybe, and they'd all been at the early opener. So that means, um, so some of the pubs in Kalgoorlie opened really early to get the night shift guys and they usually stay there all day. And this bloke had been drinking there, this huge guy. And usually my charms would work. <laughs> this occasion they didn't and he headbutted me, um, which was really quite interesting oh my god the next morning he was so upset he was mortified he'd done it came in and apologized you know after he'd been released from the lockup the goldfields um esperance district is still the largest policing district in the world and then from there i thought hmm bit bored here I'm still single, bit bored, no good pickings up here. <laughs> hmm, maybe I'll go back to Perth. Um, got a, an email from a mate who I, I had just, my former squad leader from um, the police academy, and he emailed me and said, hey, uh, as you know, I've gone to Iraq. I'm working with a great bunch of guys over here. We need a, a female. Um, I told them I know a troll which is my nickname, Kimmy Troll. And I told them I know a troll um, and she'd be fantastic. And I think I was just in the right place at the right time. I had no idea um, what this job was I was going to do. And I arrived in Jordan um, still no more aware of exactly what I'd got myself into. Um, met up with some guys. And we were put into some Suburbans and driven from Jordan across the border into Iraq, um, from Amman in Jordan into Iraq. And, um, and were met by our headquarters team, who were to become my team, um, and an American guy, I remember, massive, big, I forget his name now, he died in an ID on the airport road. He said to me, um, ah, what are you doing here? And I said, oh, I don't know, I'm the same as you, I'm, I guess. I'm, I'm here to be a PSD. 
and I sort of didn't know what a PSD is. Um, I still protect a personal security detail member. Um, and he just laughed at me and he said, no, 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 you must be here to work in the office or something. So I think the one thing that if you haven't already heard, I think determination is what's driven me throughout my life. And having people say no to me or doubt my ability spurs me on even more. Um, and a few months in, I was made like convoy commander for trips up north that we would do. So we got to see a lot of Iraq before it um, turned bad. And we had team sites, as Tim would know, in a lot of Iraq. And um, we visited those regularly. Um, really amazing opportunity, just amazing. I learned so much about myself in the year that I worked there initially. I met and fell in love with um, and proposed to young Brazilian lad. Um, I was a bit out of control, a bit of a wayward lass. So I thought, oh, this bloke's Harry Strait. He'll set me right. Look, he doesn't like V8s. In fact, he drives like a little three-cylinder car. But I can forgive that because um, he's a good man and he is respectful. So, um, so Kim, sorry, you, you proposed to him. I and did. Did you do it downrange? Was this in Iraq? <laughs> it was in Iraq. Was it as no, romantic it was... as the, K the KFC romance? Describe, describe <laughs> yeah, how it, it rolled was, out. Look, I tell you what, it was love at first sight. And he, and he um, yeah, I don't know how much I sort of should say, but the, the romance led to um, nighttime me sneaking out. I mean, I can say this now, Tim, um, but, you know, driving um, cars across Baghdad with an abaya. So I will always carried an abaya in my run bag um, with an abaya on and an MP5 under the abaya. So I remember my first handgun was a Glock um, to the disgust of all the boys. I'd asked for a Glock. Um, and they got me one because all of the coppers, all of the Iraqi police who had been all geared up by the Americans, supplied with it, were selling Hang them on, down. Hang on, Kim, you're avoiding the question. The proposal, <laughs> the proposal. <laughs> the proposal was when I drank too much of a $9 bottle of absolute vodka um, and had said to him, I want you to marry me. And he was quite hesitant because he had quite a... Um, yeah, it was hesitant. I th think it took him three days. Well, three you, hadn't, days? you hadn't produced a ring, I assume. No, you know, it was not in London. Hey, no, everyone no. knows that you've yeah. got to yeah, exactly. front up with a yeah. rock, the pull top off a can or something. <laughs> I know. Sorry, the romance. I'd much rather talk about the guns, but the romance, okay. So, um, so yeah, I proposed to him and then it took him probably about another seven days to tell his mother. Um, and, yeah, that was probably the scariest thing I think he's ever had to do. Um, he's was it a leap year? What year are we in? Was it a leap year? It was year? a leap year. That's exactly go. why I asked him. Right. Very switched on. Yes. So as a result of that, I spoke to my boss and asked to be transferred out to from the headquarters team 
and to move out to the Karata team, which was out in Karata District. And I don't know, some of you would know, but Karata was this, um, used to be a vibrant pumping um, suburb of Baghdad. And um, the boys had a, we were living out in Karata in a hotel that had um, protecting clients who were living there. And um, it was really different to living inside the green zone. So previously I'd been living in the green zone. Um, and prior to that, we were living at the Sheraton Hotel, the infamous Sheraton Hotel. Um, and Christmas Day, I've got a photo that a, a mate sent me um, of the four of us Christmas Day outside the Sheraton Hotel. We just had an RPG to the side of the building. So that woke us up at about 6am, I think. Um, we took an RPG just sort of short of our rooms, which was really interesting, quite loud. Um, and Christmas Day was spent sort of ferrying clients to and from the green zone or the international zone. Um, and then we all moved in um, to the IZ. And, um, but as I was saying, I then moved out to Karata District, which saw me doing different jobs, um, probably travelling Iraq a lot more, um, trips daily to Ramadi, um, team sites out there. So those areas back then. So we'd had Mosul took off with... Um, with those really violent deaths of the American contractors up there, um, the bridge where their bodies were hung from the bridge, really quite horrific stuff. And that was all, I think from memory, it was around April. It kicked off around April. And it, as I said to you previously, it, it coincided with um, the shutting of Sada's newspaper, which um, interestingly, Sada's still, over the years that I stayed in Iraq, um, Sada still remains um, able to mobilise his followers at short notice, um, such a, um, an influence um, that I think was greatly underestimated. Amongst other things in that country mm. um, that were underestimated, um, I think he still remains one of the most underestimated um, influences. Anyway, so... Things started to really heat up. Um, a few of our team sites were closed down and everyone was brought back into Baghdad and we ran missions from um, Baghdad. I think being the first female contractor in Iraq really, um, I wasn't really aware of it until the boys told me they'd seen an American girl, American lady, um, on one of the maybe one of the Blackwater teams um, at the airport. I was so excited. Oh, my God. <laughs> I was like, oh, my God, another woman. We can talk about hair and stuff. I don't know. Um, you know, and I just thought, wow, another woman. So, and it was a few days and I, I'd heard whispers about other, um, you know, obviously other um, women, Australian women, um, but I sort of never had cause to cross paths with, with them. But this woman was a, a contractor in my domain and I thought this is fantastic. And one day I saw her um, from a distance at the Baghdad International Airport, the BIAP, which was one of the runs we used to do every day, and down that infamous road. And how did I know she was another female con operator? I knew because she had, she was new to country, she had 
the really bad sort of body armour that you used to get issued when you were new to country, like the stuff that they gave you when you're fresh off the plane, which is like these bright blue sort of, or, you know, blue plates that weigh 12 tonnes, you know, it's horrible stuff. Um, and she had like a really bad AK um, and she was unloading um, at an unloading bay and I just thought, oh, my God, I've got to go and say hello. And I said to the boys, oh, my God, there's the woman. I'm going to go and say hello. Stop. <laughs> so I ran up to her. She looked at me with such disgust. Um, it was bizarre. That was a real mm. bizarre moment for me. Mm. But I gave her my number and said, if you ever need to call um, or talk through anything, please call me. Um, she didn't stay in country very long. Um, but after that, we did see a few more women. I think there was um, one of the girls from Perth. Um, she went in on a contract. So high-risk environments. Yes. For a female working in a hostile environment, one of high risk, what would be your top tips? <laughs> top tip. You don't have to behave like a man. Um, you have to do your job and you have to do it well, but don't buy into, I guess, the bullshit to be crass. Um, when I first arrived, it was a difficult situation. No one really wanted me there in terms of the team. And in a hostile environment, everyone is very alert and emotions can um, can you know really um, blow out don't take anything to heart but always do your best and just remain true to yourself I did that and it worked and I am still in contact with one of the guys who actually went to the boss and said I just don't want to hear why mm. is this woman here so that mm. would be my top tip and um, Focus on the objective. Why are you there? You're there to do a job. Um, and another top tip would be, yeah, you're not a man, you're a woman. You do things differently, um, but you do them well. And when I was working on team for the ambassador for the UN, the SRSG um, for the UN in Iraq, we took him to, um, we went to Lebanon and there was myself and another guy and he liked shopping, very suave man, um, great man. And we took him shopping and he was trying on some shoes and he said to me, try these boots on, they'll look fantastic on you. And I said, boss, where would I ever use those boots? And he said, I think you should wear them to dinner tonight. And, you know, so I think remaining... Um, true to your femininity um, or not losing it is what I learned later. You don't have to be a bloke. You just have to be good at your job. Mm. Yeah, you're not competing. You're, you're sort of complimenting. Yeah, absolutely. I think when I learned that, I stopped dressing in still appropriate workwear, but, um, you know, and I think I the hostile environment um, while you're in it, um, you're aware of what's going on, um, but it made me strive to be the best that I could be. So I went and paid for myself to do shooting courses at Rogers Shooting in States. Um, I went and did a course at Hereford in the UK 
um, over New Year and Christmas, all to be better at my job. Um, it wasn't about, whilst I'm still a huge champion of women and listening to your podcast, your previous with Mon, with Monica, it was mm. so inspiring. She's an amazing woman. Yeah, she is. Um, yeah amazing. Um, I think for me, so many women can do this, but a lot of us, there's a lot of people, and I suffer from that imposter syndrome, I think, you know, really who are you, but believe in yourself and um, believe in why you're there and and invest in your skill set. If there's something that I couldn't do, like I wasn't the best shot, by the time I came back, um, I was. And so I did all of that. Um, I needed to, you know, I saw the gaps in what having poor intelligence um, led to and it led to um, us, to my team, doing travelling a route daily to and from the same location at the same time despite me giving intelligence and that led to us um, being involved in an attack on our convoy, a VBID attack. Um, no one was killed in that one. Was but that on Route Irish? No, that was in um, that was at the Aminart building. So that was across mm. from the international zone. Um, so there was that one that was the first one and that really empowered me to take an interest in intelligence and I started studying intel. Mm. Um, and then, yes, we were hit on. So we were evacuating clients. Um, it was a, a joint operation between all of our teams, so our headquarters team, our Karada team, and we uh, loaded all of the clients into uh, the pig into uh, this big old beaten up um, V8 GMC that I love, Suburban. We drove down Irish um, to evacuate the clients to Kuwait. So things started getting pretty hectic in Baghdad. Um, we started receiving a lot of um, rocket attacks into the green zone. So the decision was made to just move the clients out for a little while, um, give them a bit of breathing space and just see what happens. So we were evacuing them to the airport. And just for our out. listeners, so the green zone being the safer precinct and Route Irish being the road that linked the Baghdad International Airport to that safer precinct, the green zone, which at the time, that route was regarded as being the most dangerous stretch of road on the planet. Yeah. yeah and, and not a long stretch of road either, Kim. No, quite a short one. Certainly less than, you know, 10 Ks maybe. Don't know. Um, but we would run that in the cars, um, going to pick up clients and taking people to the airport every day, sometimes twice a day. Mm. Um, and we were sort of maybe halfway down there um, and we had an ID um, detonate on my vehicle, on the vehicle that I was driving. So it was known, the tactics um, that we used in Iraq were well known by um, by the opposition, by our um, bad guys over there. They knew that we would keep our clients in either, you know, the biggest car, the middle car or the end car. So they, often it was luck, but this time they, they got the right car and it, Lucky for us, it wasn't packed very well. The detonate, detonation and um, actually wasn't that large. It shook the car. It knocked the electronics in the car out. We limped through 
Um, so we still, I drove through um, and the clients were all um, fine, but we stopped inside BIAP and regrouped. There was some damage to the car, but not a lot. So that one was, um, for us, luckily, it was very poorly, I think, prepared and laid. So at that time, there were sweeping patrols that went out twice a day along that airport road. Um, and then a few months later, I had left um, URG and I had gone to work for another company. We were doing low-profile um, movements in low-profile vehicles with no um, armour. I was wearing an abaya. Anyway, so during that time, uh, it was around, it was 2005, um, my then fiancé, the Romance, he was the team leader in um, a three-vehicle convoy and that convoy was hit um, with a very large, uh, I think it was about a 500-pound, they estimated, um, VBID. So they were returning from the airport. They'd picked up one of the boys on the team, no clients, um, and we lost one of the boys who was my team leader, um, mm. amazing man, Pavel, uh, this huge um, six foot three, um, massive man mountain of mm. a teddy bear, <laughs> amazing operator, um, amazing team leader. Uh, Czech from the Czech Republic um, and just an amazing man. So, and my fiance was seriously injured. So the they were in a, a um, really heavily armoured um, Mercedes and the engine from that Mercedes, the blast was so large that the engine from that Mercedes had pushed forward onto Pavel, um, crushed him um, and then pushed him back on top of Louise, who was sitting in the back seat, and um, had blown Louise out of the vehicle face down into a puddle of water um, in the middle of, of the Biap Road, so that like an, an island in the middle of the road. Um, so lucky for them, a crew of... Um, US Army guys were, I think they were in front of them and the medics, of course, deployed and really were on site within minutes. And I think that is pretty much what saved Louise and one of the boys, the driver, one of our, our amazing Iraqi guys. Um, I think that's what saved their lives. I was stuck out at Biap and they closed the roads. So as soon as there's a, an explosion, they close the roads. I was at Biap working for another company with a team leader who um, really needs to learn how to be a leader. Um, and he said to me, oh, there's been an explosion. Your fiancé is involved in it. I hear he's all right. Uh, you can go and see him tomorrow when we go in and do the run. So this is when I really had to, as I say, man up. And I said to him, that's not acceptable um, to me. I rang the boys um, from the team and uh, they told me that Pav had died and that Luis was about to die. He was in um, hospital and he was about to die. So we went and called in all the favours we could. Um, all of the um, road transport had stopped. Uh, along Biat Road because of the um, 
because of what had happened, they closed the road. So um, I had I got in later that night, and I think I met with his doctor, who was a US major, amazing guy. Um, said to me, "This is the first time I've ever had to." speak to medical next of kin of anyone that I've dealt with here, well, I'm going to have to take both his legs. And I said, look, um, what are the other options? And when they told me what the options were, I said, look, um, if you take his legs, even one of his legs, as soon as he comes to, the man will jump out of the nearest window. I know him. And what you have to do is preserve his legs. I'm, I will not make that decision for him. So that was something that took a day of toing and froing and something I really learned about standing my ground on. Um, and it was a long road back for Luis. Um, he's still working in Iraq. Um, mm. He is amazing today. He, um, we, we spent about, I think it was about a month in Kuwait. He was medevaced. Believe it or not, the um, hospital in Baghdad, American hospital in Baghdad, didn't have any facility for burns. So, and because he was a Brazilian um, uh, national, he was not eligible to be evac'd to Ramstein, which is where I would have gone if that was me in that accident. So mm. we went to Kuwait. Um, we went to a burns unit there. I could talk for an hour about that experience, but we don't have the time. Um, <laughs> he was then medevaced home. He was looked after. And my, he was the first um, really bad experience um, or the first, you know, it, incident that we had to deal with as a company or that 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 the company we were he was working for had to deal with it was really challenging times we hadn't had anything like that before you've got tremendous field experience you know very practical and applied you know, your time in, in the police force, including out in the gold fields, your army reserve time, your time as a private member of a private security company and also the UN. But you've also studied um, an undergrad degree in counterterrorism, security and intelligence, and then also a postgraduate certificate in intelligence and terrorism at St Andrews. Has your practical knowledge been transferable into your academic work? It has. It has. It helps me understand exactly what risk means. Um, yeah, because you've come I, at it the other way, haven't you? Because the majority of people who would have studied your undergrad degree, the counterterrorism, security and intelligence, would have never had that field time that you'd have. You know, so they're yeah. going to be studying the impacts yeah. of things like, you know, post-2003 invasion in Iraq and what happened next mm. without having ever been on the streets of Baghdad. Yeah. So that's pretty unique. You're right. You're right. It is. It is unique. Um, it's really empowered me with the ability to look for what's next or the so what, as we like to say, that so what. So what does that mean for us? Um, okay, so um, we've just come out of, to use my most recent um job we've all you know been touched by um 
by the COVID, you know, by isolation, we've um, all, all of us have had that in our lives. But what does that mean for us moving forward? What does that mean for me? What does that mean for Australia? What does that mean for our national security? What does that mean for my clients, um, their business, their family? So it's enabled me to rather than just report on what happened today, um, like, you know, a newsreader, it's also enabled me to look at, at um, what comes next, to look with a more strategic lens. So I said to you my passion for intelligence came from witnessing on the ground intelligence failures and you know um and that was the lack of any type of real-time intelligence um so which led me to doing our own daily briefings to doing our own traffic reports Mm. so i see what intelligence can do um unfortunately like me um my recent job was um reporting on on COVID for um, so that decision makers could understand the risk um, around that. And I think it's really enabled me to sit back now and go, well, what's next? And to prepare myself for the next phase because in my eyes this hasn't finished. There are still many things that will occur as a result of what is still going on globally. And um, so that's what my practical experience brings to me. And I understand that whilst um, there are certainly bad people in the world, everyone isn't bad. Um, We can't paint everyone with the same brush. Mm. And that in order to move forward um, and to get ahead of the game, um, of their game in terms of um, CT, we need to um, come at it with more of an understanding and not a textbook approach. So using the skills of guys and girls who have actually been in arenas such as Iraq and actually been on the ground and understand what drives and motivates those people. Um, mm. Yeah. That's that's probably a lovely place to wrap it up on the on the note of tolerance and understanding. Kim Martin, thanks very much for being on the podcast. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Tell me, do you listen while other people lie in your bed? Tell me a reason why I should disclose the things in my head. I got a feeling it comes to me from I don't know where.
somebody 